to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we hope you guys enjoyed your weekend. We have a fun episode for you guys today. That's right. If you are a Porsche file and follow the Porsche brand, you may know the name Hans Mesger. And even if you're not a Porsche fan, the name is fairly prevalent. Yeah, it is, he uh, he recently passed away, and he has a very storied history with Porsche. And we will basically we're just going to take this opportunity to kind of go through his entire history and give a tribute to the man and his legacy. And it's very interesting. Yeah, this guy won life. Yeah, he really and, did. You know, I th- I think about you know my my grandmother is getting getting up there in years, and we're kind of like, oh man, she's getting old. And we're like, well, actually, she won. <laughs> she won, you know, you know, and it's, and it's, I like that you can, you can look at this. I mean, he was 90 years old Yep. and he had this storied career, which we're going to talk about. And, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to it. We also have uh, Alvin Springer. Yes. I called him on Friday, right? I believe it was Friday and talked to him about, um, Hans Mesger. And we talked about, you know, the 917 and a few other things. We're actually going to post the entire interview we had with him on our Patreon. Right. So if you want to hear that, you can go to patreon.com slash overcrest. If you want to hear that interview in its entirety, he's a super cool guy. Yeah, um, he was actually one of the founders of Andile, which is an amazing Porsche support brand. And they also did a lot of tuning on those cars. And he was in charge of basically Vasek Polek in a way. I mean, he was the chief technician yep, at Vasek he was Polek. The, their um, chief, chief race technician. Right. So he rebuilt the engines, worked on the 917s. He was around during the Can-Am series. So we talked to him a little bit about that. Yeah. He so, had a lot of insight as far as Metzger's accomplishments and having met him. So we, you'll we hear were, from him. We're, we're deep on this episode. We really we, are. We really are. So, so we hope, with we hope you that, guys like it. I think I'm probably just going to get right into it, Chris. Yeah, let's do it. Let's hear it. All right. So on November 18th, 1929, the youngest of five children was born in Ottmarsheim, which is a small village near Ludwigsburg on the outskirts of Stuttgart. Well, it sounds like he's born in the right place. Yes, <laughs> right by Stuttgart. He's right there. His parents ran a small country inn, but that didn't mean they weren't smart or cultured. I mean, they're basically in a small little outskirts town running this little inn. However, the boy's parents raised all the children with an interest in the arts. And as he later recalled, quote, almost everyone in our family had a talent for painting and played a musical instrument. I found life exciting and attended elementary school. I was interested in becoming all kinds of things, from a musician to a physicist. So this guy had a very rich childhood. And beyond the arts, the young boy also took an interest in technology, more specifically, airplanes. He and the neighborhood boys would occasionally travel down to the nearby technical college, where they would marvel the older students' glider projects being launched up in the air. So 1929 the is when he was born. So he's probably, what, 1939 here? You can imagine the plane is kind of like an amazing newish technology. Yeah, every, it seems like everything is new back then. Things were moving very, very fast. We're talking post-World War I Germany at this, at this time as he's, exactly. as he's growing up and everything. I really wanted to fly myself, he remembers. And from then on, he dreamt of either building or flying airplanes. Unfortunately... The Second World War broke out right in the middle of his carefree childhood, which changed the direction of his life forever. So he continued to attend elementary school during the Nazi regime and narrowly missed being thrown into the fighting himself. You see, the war ended just before his 16th birthday, which was the military draft age for the Third Reich. 16. 
Good grief. Yeah. However, after the war, as Europe was able to heal from the destruction, the Paris Peace Treaty is a 1947 banned all design, construction, and operation of aircraft by Germans. So an aviation career was out of the question. They'd had enough of Germany. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of can, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, they just had had enough. There was, right. which is, you know, that's why some of the uh, the engineers that were in the Nazi regime, you know, as we talked about Klaus, right? Klaus, was it Klaus Werner? What's oh, the, Werner von Braun. Ver, Werner, Werner, Werner von Braun, von Braun. Yeah. yeah. I just come up with Klaus out of midair. I guess I don't know what I'm <laughs> but I mean, they didn't have anything to do because everything was basically shut down. So he came right. to America and started designing bombs here instead. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, so instead, our guy here, he decided to study mechanical engineering and enrolled at what is now the University of Stuttgart. And as it turned out, he had a natural ability when it came to numbers and mathematics, which suited his studies, obviously. The gifted mathematician graduated in 1956 and was so successful that it was greeted by a, quote, veritable flood of job offers. There were 28 he recounted. Wow. But the company I really wanted to work for was not amongst them. You see, during the 1950s in post-war Germany, there was one car that could be seen not only on the streets of Stuttgart, but also winning on racetracks around the world. The Auto Union. No, Chris. <laughs> the Porsche 356 was renowned for its aerodynamics, handling, and exceptional performance. It was the car that took hold of the imagination of our intrepid engineer, and it was where he wanted to work. Porsche. So I applied, he remembers, and to his delight, he was offered a job. There he was, right out of school, beginning his career at the company that inspired him working on the car he dreamed of doesn't get much better than that yeah that's not actually what happened oh no <laughs> quote the company offered me a job in diesel engine development for their tractors until then i didn't even know porsche had such a thing <laughs> but i envisioned working on sports cars and they showed understanding and that's how i started in the calculations department and it didn't take long for the young man to make a name for himself in the company. And that name, Chris, is, of course, Hans Mesger. So Mesger gained experience with the famous Furman 4-cam engine. And being the brilliant mathematician that he was... That was one of our... That was our top four-cylinder engine of all time, wasn't it? Wasn't it number yes, one? Yes, it was, I believe. Just because of its... Insane complexity. Insane complexity over engineering and the performance that it was able to do and it was at the time. One of the most winningest engines at the time as yeah. well in uh, actual championships. Yeah, special car racing. So he worked with Furman's 4Cam engine and being the brilliant mathematician that he was, developed a formula for calculating cam profiles. This is way before the age of computers, Chris. Right. This is all slide rules and pen Pocket and paper. Protectors, yeah. yeah. So this greatly simplified cam fact camshaft production and therefore saved Porsche a great deal of money in the process. Now with his obvious What was this formula? Like how did it work? What was I don't know. I'm sure he's like, all right, well if we for need for the duration of this, we need duration this much air. and rev and everything else, he's like, this is the exact profile you need. This displacement we need to draw on this much air to have this much air mixture because the carburetor flows this much. So we need a camshaft that's gonna have this lift, this duration. And uh, actual profile. And like the profile how, of the cam. 
like how round is it, Chris? You well, can't that's just lift and duration. That's how round it is. Okay. So you have lift, which is how tall it is, and you have right. duration, which, which is, is how, how wide, wide it is. Right. So lift and duration together is your cam profile. Okay. I, I would think. I, I just. I'm sure there's a little bit more to it. Like you have ramp up as well. Yeah. 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 So for sure. I'm sure. Hans was on top of all of that. Yeah, this is 2020, obviously. and I obviously still don't know the formula. Yeah, I don't either. So this greatly simplified camp shaft production, as I mentioned, and with his obvious engineering talent, Porsche asked him to assist in the development of a new 1.5-liter, eight-cylinder engine for use in Porsche's first foray into Formula One. Quote, the company was still so small at the time that there was quite a lot of overlapping work, and the staff working on the engine sometimes also worked on the chassis. As such, Mesger not only helped in the development of the engine itself, but also the entire suspension and chassis of what we now know as the Porsche 804. So that's kind of their really small-looking early Formula One car, right? Formula, it's open wheels, it has right. the engine right behind them. Looks like a like a like a bomb, right? Or, the, or a fuel tank. Yeah, like a exactly. Fuel tank like something. very minimalist as far as design. Right. So he had his first kind of design work with that. And it obviously worked. The 804 went on to win the 1962 French Grand Prix at the hands of Dan Gurney, which is a name that many may recognize as well. Now, during the same time, Porsche was developing the successor to its now outdated 356. The car, as we all know, was to become the 911. Now, the six-cylinder engine design is often attributed to Mesger himself. However, that's something of a misnomer. Yeah, because you always look and you look at his accomplishments and it's like, oh, the engine in the 901, that was the, the flat six, the two, two liter thing, that's him. So that's not to say that Mesger didn't have a role in the engine's success. Far from it. With his experience developing the Formula One engine, he implemented different camshafts, big surprise, because that's what his formula was for, an eight-fold crankshaft. I wonder if he wandered around with that formula, like holding He's it like, up to industry. Yeah, what <laughs> else can we put this to use on? <laughs> can we put a camshaft in this? He's at, his, at home, the handmade coffee maker, like turning the thing. He's like, this thing needs a new profile. This yeah, thing isn't grinding the beans terrible. up at all. <laughs> yeah, so he has a new camshaft, an eight-fold crankshaft, and most importantly, all new valve angles. The 27 degrees at the intake and 33 degrees at the exhaust not only reduced the fuel consumption of the engine, but also increased the performance. And the quality of this design is evident. Those same angles remained unchanged for 30 years right up to the last air-cooled 911. That's incredible. It really is. So here's what's interesting. At the same time the 911, or 901 as was known at the time, was being developed... Porsche was also working on a new race car, the 906. And in regards to the 906 engine, quote, we approached the development of the engine in the reverse of the usual manner, explains Mesger. First, a new engine was conceived for the production car, the Porsche 911. And then the racing engineers were assigned the job of making a competitive unit out of the production engine. Now, to some extent, though, the evolution of the two engines took place basically in parallel. Right. Work on a racing adaptation was already in train in 1964 when the final touches were being made to the series-built engine for the 911. Do we know what the difference is in the engine 
is? Well, here's what's interesting. Because they're basically built in parallel, it allowed the needs of the racing model to influence the design of some parts of the 911 engine, such as the cylinder head that would be used in both types of engines. This is how the 911 engine came to be so robust and over-engineered. It basically was designed as a racing engine from the outset. Right. So, and that's one thing that's always made the engine cool. Is it's just such a bulletproof, it reliable was, yeah. engine because it just it's an underbuilt race engine at that point. Exactly, the street version is just a detuned race motor. Exactly, it really was. So Ferdinand Pike took note of Mesger's talent and appointed him as the new head of Porsche's Motorsport R and D department in 1965. Right out of the gate, Hans Mesger was given a clear mission: build a car that will win the 24 Hours Le Mans for Porsche. Porsche had been trying to gain victory, the overall victory at Le Mans since 1951. They had like class wins, but never the outright The ever elusive outright win. Exactly. The car that Mesker would go on to develop to do this was the legendary 917. Mesker's genius was in his iterative approach to designing this car. Quote, we know what we can take over from earlier designs. And we also know what we do not want to take over. One thing is evident. The more experience, the smaller the risk in a new development. And the quicker, and thus also cheaper, the development process. So Chris, in a sense, the 917 is like the old carpenter's hammer, right? So it's still the same hammer, even though it has six new heads and seven new handles. And according to Metzger (laughs) then... The 917 was simply an evolution of the previous 904 or 906, which was just very much improved. Nothing that worked was rejected, unless either tests or competition had proved that it was no longer up to the job. Now, what's interesting is I think that you see, and this is just an opinion and kind of an observation, is, is every Ferrari you look at that's a race car is completely different than the It one sure before. seems that way. Doesn't it seem like that it's like the chassis is completely different, the aerodynamics are completely different? Right. It doesn't necessarily seem like each Ferrari is built on the, on the previous version. Right. I mean, maybe once you got to the... I'm not a Ferrari guy, so some guys out there like just <laughs> screaming like, at that. That's completely wrong. Yeah, it's completely wrong. But it just doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like maybe it's just because we can look at the 911 and we can just see this huge heritage and the and the way that the 917 kind of turned into the 962. Right. It's, it's it's always been an evolution of right, itself. Right. Like 908, 917. All these things kind of came step by step by step, and everything else just seems like hey, we're designing something completely new. Right. It seems like an interesting take that I think that is unique to Porsche. Right. And keep in mind, he's bearing being very modest, right? Because the engineering work he did is astounding. So the development of the 917 itself wasn't cheap either, even though he's saying we're basically building upon what we've learned already. And as such... By not cheap, you mean it almost bankrupted the company. Exactly. And as such, this small company that Porsche was at the time needed funding. Now, there were reports that funding came from Volkswagen directly who would have benefited from the image of an air-cooled car winning in racing, right? They're like, we're not the same company, but an air-cooled little car, that would help sell Beatles. Well, Porsche ended up denying that claim of Volkswagen's funding. However, they never denied a much more bizarre claim. Now, Chris, this is an amazing little story that I'd never heard before and hadn't read anywhere else. You see, back in the early days of Dr. Ferdinand Porsche, much of his work consisted of developing military vehicles for the Germans, right? Well, in the 1960s, Germany was able to begin rebuilding their peacetime defenses, and Porsche engineers once again were commissioned. 
The German military requested a powerful, robust, and compact air-cooled power unit for use in their armored tracked vehicles. Now, this, of course, sounds exactly the same attributes that one would want I in an just, endurance I racing just, engine. I could just see the guys at Porsche getting like the memo or yeah, something and yeah. just like raising their hand. Hey, me, pick me, yeah, pick me. Uh, okay, so right, you want it light, us. air-cooled, compact, <laughs> and reliable. Okay, what does that sound like? That sounds like an endurance racing engine. And so, according to the official military budgets, the same engine that dominated racetracks in the 917 also found its way into German tanks. I had no idea. I'd never I'd heard, never that, heard before. that before. Now, some have speculated that this was actually a way for the German government to unofficially support Porsche's racing efforts. After all, Porsche's win at Le Mans would be a boost to the entire German country, right? Sure. It's, it's a boost to morale. Right. So rather than them saying, hey, we're going to like slip money to Porsche under the table, they'll say, well, we'll just commission them to build some, can we need a, some engines. Can we, do we need a tank? Do we need a, do we need, I think do we we need, need a tank. Yeah, yeah, let's let's get some tanks get up tank. in here. Hey, do we have Porsche, <laughs> Porsche, you want to do that? The new engine was a 4.5 liter air-cooled 180 degree flat 12 design. One man who knows the brilliance of these engines intimately is Alwyn Springer. I started with Pollock in 1969 and took over the racing operation. And then in 1970, Pollock uh, got the car, achieved the car. We got the Joe Zifford's first uh, 917 PA Spider. So as we mentioned before, Alwyn Springer was the crew chief for Vasek Pollock. Right. The 917 engine was internally known by the code 912, which is obviously not to be confused with the four-cylinder version of the 911. Yeah. Here's what I didn't that's know. That's about as far, in terms of Porsche so, relationship, that's about as far away as you What get. I read... Is it like a secret? Was it like, hey, we're going to call this engine that's going to be the best engine of all time by the number that is our slowest engine of all so time? So here's what I read. I don't know if this is true or not. The 912, the, the four-cylinder the 911... Car was named by Porsche's marketing department. That was not the engineering like nomenclature for it. It should have been named the 910 in my right. in my opinion. It's one less, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, sorry, it's just yeah. not, it's not so as good. It just this monstrous engine is called the 912. So one common misconception is that this engine is basically two flat sixes welded together. No, 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 the 917 engine had nothing to do with two flat sixes. That was a complete new engine from the, from the get-go. Because, you know, like a, a normal uh, um, engine, you have a crankshaft, you have a flywheel. See, the 917 had a crankshaft. In the middle of the crankshaft, there's a gear. Then there's an output shaft underneath. And that is where the flywheel sits. So the, 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 the crankshaft was actually oil-fed from the front and the rear. It was, an, it was a complete different engine. Complete. When you mean complete different engine, he basically means completely different than anything else anyone had ever It is a built. wild design. It's crazy. The There's actually the gear that he's talking about on the crankshaft that goes through the center of the motor. Right. It's part of the crankshaft. It's yeah, not it's like, machined from the crankshaft. It is part integral it is not usually you see a crank or a, a gear you think of like a bevel gear this is a straight cut gear right that basically goes to a shaft that runs the so oil there are pump. two different shafts you right. have your output shaft and that's what that actual flywheel is attached to on the all, back of the motor all the power goes from the crankshaft through one gear set up to 1500 horsepower which, which we'll is a, get to <laughs> it's nuts yeah so you have the uh, if i if i can just 
see if I can figure this out in my head. So you have the center crankshaft right. with the gear in the middle, which is a big straight cut gear. It's not like a brass gear that you see in a lot of other things. It's a straight cut gear in the right. middle of the crankshaft. Above that is a shaft that runs like the twin distributors and the- uh, Yeah, all the accessories. So it has, yep, it's twin plug, two different- distributors on right. each end of the engine right it's run from the top output shaft imagine a, a, tw- a, a rotator or a rotator a cap and rotor for a, oh my goodness with 12 I, cylinders uh, yeah, on it all just ridiculous <laughs> be like the size of a pie plate so they have two separate ones <laughs> two one on each end of the engine front and back in the center off that output shaft is also the fan so it's a horizontal fan yep. that drives this entire thing is air cooled right you. and that's like a bevel gear that one is yep. and then of course you have the injection pump which is that's actually belt driven then right off of one of the camshafts so it's basically the only true if you think about it the only true failure point because you don't want like alternator is also belt driven yeah but you could if you had a battery you could run still oh, run wow. the car. I'm, I'm just saying if you're if your alternator belt fails the motor's not going to explode no but on our car like a 911 engine if the belt falls off your motor's going to overheat and die that's this true is direct this, drive right. fan super bulletproof never going to fail um ridiculously complex engine it, yeah it, it's it, it is i mean we're talking we're not talking four cam complex but we're talking with the cost of engineering has there's there's no cost just keep going engineer this to be as as insane as it can possibly be yeah it really was and what's interesting in an effort to reduce weight the many components were made of titanium magnesium and really exotic alloys that they had never used before in an engine i wonder if this is where dilavar started I think Those, it was actually, yes. Yeah, Dilavar. I read that the it, bane of my of every 911 SC engine <laughs> owner's life, Dilavar. Yeah. So here's the most amazing part, Chris. This is such, we were looking at diagrams. It's such a like different, unique design of an engine, and it's so complex. However, Porsche never built a prototype of the 917 engine to test. Quote, that would have taken too long. <laughs> In the confidence that the 912 engine would be right as designed, the company commissioned the production of the complete run of engines right off of the drawing board. That's pretty impressive. Yes. You could never get away with anything like that. No, of course not. The rest of the car was just as amazing. It featured an aluminum tube frame covered with extremely light fiberglass body panels. How many hours does a car spend on the dyno? Does an engine that's developed spending on the dyno before, before it ever it even goes gets to close production. to a car? Yeah. Before it even gets close to being in a car that gets driven around a track in the dark so no one can see it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's... Think about this. Mezger just designed it, and then they said, all right, Go! It works. They, it's they, going to work. Someone probably said, this better work. There was at some point, oh, there was I'm a sure conversation. I'm sure said, it will work. It will. Yeah. It will. So the chassis of the car, as I mentioned, was a space frame made from aluminum. And this had actually never been used by Porsche I before. they did magnesium as well for the for the chassis. The, the chassis, the, the actual space frame itself, the tube frame, yep. was aluminum. And this was never used before, but it's weight saving over steel was necessary to meet their ultimate weight goals. So with this untested aluminum frame, the main concern was cracking under stresses and detect cracking an extremely ingenious method was developed. The entire aluminum frame was permanently pressurized. 
This was then hooked up to a pressure gauge displayed on the car's dashboard. If the frame developed a crack, it would lose pressure and the driver would immediately be able to recognize that. And that's honestly one of my favorite parts about the 917. It's such an elegant solution. It adds virtually no weight or complexity and yet is such a vital system to the car. Do you know what the frame weighs? I don't. A hundred pounds. <laughs> I'm serious. The frame for the entire car, the frame, the two frame is, I think it's like 92 pounds or something. Like, or wow. around 100 pounds, 45 kilograms or whatever that comes out for our Euro friends. That's I mean, it's crazy. Just, I weigh more than that. Uh, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Other methods of weight reduction were a little simpler, such as the now iconic birch wood gear shift knob. So a regular metal or aluminum shift knob weighed too much. They said, well, what's the lightest material? How about birch wood? That doesn't weigh anything. They didn't make them out of skateboards back then? No, they didn't back then. (laughs) (laughs) To keep the car compact despite the large engine, the driving position was so far forward that the feet of the driver were beyond the front wheel axle. Crumple zone? What what crumple zone? You are the crumple zone. Yeah, your feet are the crumple zone. So the entire development of the 917 took place extremely quickly. Have, and have you you've seen a 917? I have. One thing that always strikes me is how small they are. They are extremely small. You yes. just don't understand how small a 917 is until you have a chance to see one. They come up to your belly button. Right. Or your nose in this case. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're so tiny. They're very small. Because when you look at the the proportions of it and the shape, it seems like it should be a big car. But really, it's just big enough for one guy to squeeze into and a massive engine behind them. And the entire development of this car took place extremely quickly. It was basically made possible due to a loophole of sorts. So you see, the FIA changed the regulations in sports car racing in 1968. In a nutshell, nobody was allowed to use an engine with more than three liters of displacement. However, there was an exception for production cars. Production cars, you might have guessed, was a loosely used term in this instance. If a manufacturer built at least 25 cars for homologation, they could be equipped with a five liter engine. However, as there was virtually no time left for production, Pike reportedly all hands on deck. Literally. Even the company's secretaries and accountants were put to work on the production line to help build the 917. That's why they're called the secretary cars. Exactly. Keep in mind... And these are the ones with the green on them, right? Yes. There was 25 of those made, white with green. And those were the homologation cars. Now, keep in mind that failing simply was not an option for Porsche. If this car didn't work out, it would have meant bankruptcy. It was the end of the company. That was it. Can you think of any instances in modern times, anytime within the last 20 years, where any company took this kind of risk? For racing. It's not like a new model. This is just a race car that they bet literally the entire company it's still, on. At this point, it's still a family company. Right. And there's a lot of pride there. Yes. You're not, you're not beholden to the shareholders and the European Union and everything no. else that's hanging over everybody's head now. Yeah. Pike later admitted that the 917 was the riskiest project of his entire life. But that risk paid off. 1969 was the car's debut at Le Mans. The 917s led the pack for the majority of the race and were the fastest cars out there by a huge margin. But without sufficient time to test these cars, problems did crop up. All Porsche 917s either crashed or didn't finish due to technical problems. I was 
I've talked to Brian Redman about this car, and he said they were an absolute shit show to drive <laughs> at first. They were tough. Yeah. So, quote, we were, by a distance, much faster than the rest of the grid in the 917, and the engine ran like clockwork. If the gearbox hadn't cracked, it would have been outstanding. However, the following year, the 917s were back, taking a perfect 1-2-3 finish overall. And that was only the that's beginning. An, okay, that's an impressive turnaround. Yeah, from, from not from finishing. From abject failure, this car is not good. And I was talking to, I forget where, who I was talking to, but they said that the um, the car was all over. It used, every, at flat out, the car used every bit of the track. I mean, it used it all because wow. it just wasn't, the chassis just wasn't good. You know, it just wasn't good. It was a handful to drive. To, to say the least. Yeah. So that one, two, three finish, that comeback the following year, that was really only the beginning. The following year, Porsche introduced the 917 in the Can-Am series, where it was fitted with turbocharging technology, producing an astonishing 1,200 horsepower in race trim, 1,500 in qualifying. 1,500, it's kind of... It, yeah, we didn't really measure, but it's a yeah, lot. Yeah, that knob can, it's the good times knob, that's for sure. <laughs> so Alwyn Springer recalls his first time seeing one of these monster engines. Park sent me for four months in the late uh, 70s to Sufnausen in the racing department to learn the engine transmission and a little bit about the car. Because, you know, like obviously we had no idea what it was. So that was very helpful to people. Really good thing. I learned a lot. I made a lot of notes. And at that time, the racing department and the uh, development department were actually only divided by a door. So I tried to sneak in there, you know, and look a little bit around. But I'll, I'll tell you that that didn't take maybe two minutes, five minutes, and they had me right there and please leave. Why? I thought, why? They're very clever because all the people from the development department had red uniforms, and we, at the rest of the guys, had gray uniforms. So obviously, you know, like they just sat in the office upstairs, looked down and saw me in a gray thing, out. <laughs> so I've seen these red overalls. I want a pair so bad. <laughs> I've seen people walking around at like the works reunion or other oh, really? wearing red overalls. I'm like, ooh, I got to be a set of red overalls. Now, so Elvin Springer was really modest when we talked to him. Yes. I asked him like, how did you learn this stuff? He's like, yeah, I just wrote stuff I down. I just took notes. And I was looking through my uh, Brian Redman's book. Great book, by the way. If you don't have Brian Redman's uh, autobiography, you're missing out. And he says, uh, I met with crew chief Alvin Springer to go over the idiosyncrasies I would counter in testing these fearsome 1100 BHP turbocharged monsters. Alvin was one of the few people in the world who could build a 917 engine from scratch and later became the head of Porsche Motorsport North America. My trust and confidence were high. So he's modest about it. But when it comes down to it, these were complicated engines that you needed uh, a mechanical mind to be able to do anything with. Right. And so they were complicated by themselves. Then they added turbocharging for the Can-Am series. And Mesger himself really revolutionized the use of turbocharging for racing by using smaller turbos and bypass valves for better responsiveness. Before this, racing engines had used massive turbochargers without advanced wastegates or bypass valves, making for huge lag and drivability issues. Valentin Sheffer, the guy again, had the basic idea of turbocharging, 
and actually did the stuff. And then later, once the, 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 the engine was already running, you know, in Weiser development, then Mr. Detnetsko did the design work for the engine changes. You know, but until that was our prototype or welded things together, put a turbo on, had a, but you know, like once the, the design was standing, then Mr. Metzger got involved and him and his team totally, um, put the, the turbo on the, you know, like on the, on a Porsche standard. And that Porsche standard is what I'm referring to. Right. I mean, supposedly it was revolutionary the way that he was using the smaller diameter turbocharger compressor housings to make boost more accessible. And so why did Porsche and Mesker feel the need to turbocharge an already monstrous engine? Well, here's Springer. Yeah, I can tell you. It might thing here. Pure necessity. Okay? What encourages us? Pure necessity. McLaren with their mega volume engines. We had not a living chance to compete. And what he's referring to is McLaren at the time had an 8.3 liter big block V8. With, that's the ones that when you go to the vintage race, and you see the huge velocity stacks exactly. that are about 12 inches long sticking out of the top of the K&M cars. And they go by and it feels like someone's hitting you in the chest with a sledgehammer. <laughs> it's an earthquake every yeah, time they laugh. It's, it's <laughs> displacement you can hear and feel for sure. And one of the best experiences of these cars is not at the track. It is at downtown Road America. Yes. On Main Street, standing there while these cars drive by. They drive them through town. Yep, just idling around. Just idling around. <laughs> they drive right by you, five feet away, through it. Like a, 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 they're completely out of their element. And I yeah. think that's what makes it so unique. You feel like there's just a gorilla beating on your chest <laughs> as they drive by. So despite the 917 using cutting-edge turbocharging technology and being such a complex engine, according to Springer, they were dead reliable. I think we would, uh, we would race about, uh, I would say, with the turbos later on, uh, about three, three races, and then we had to take it apart. And usually, you know, rings, bearings, and uh, a couple of maybe, you know, the valve job, but the rest of it, we just put it back together again. And what's interesting, Chris, is that these private teams like Vasek Polak, they didn't even use factory fresh parts for the rebuilds. In all our um, KNM seasons with Polak, I never got any used, I never got any new parts from Polak. I only got used parts. And where did the parts come from? I found it out later on. That where the parts what the factory took out after so and so many hours and shelved them over what to throw them away, well I got them. And eventually ended up in my hands. <laughs> so they were using basically second hand. The parts. stuff that the factory teams were like, eh, I think we're just gonna we're go gonna ahead and put new ones that. on that. That's what they were using. Yeah, and yet they were still that successful, which is a testament to that engine and the engineering that went into it. So speaking of the parts in the engine, Hans Mesker had this to say, and keep in mind he's being very modest. Quote, all the parts we've used, they've already existed. They just hadn't been used for the right purposes. We've only rediscovered and reused these ideas to build the 917 engine. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a little modesty. So the question is, was the 917 expected to be this dominant in Can-Am? No, no, absolutely not. When uh, when the, the series started with uh, Volkswagen of America, Joseph, and at that time, reluctantly Weiser, 
they went into the canon, but you know, not with big expectations. That what changed here in 1972 when Penske showed up, and we came with a turbo. That is then the, the tone changed. Then the expectation were high, and Penske delivered. So my question, Chris, is why were these cars so successful if they hadn't expected it? Actually, very very short answer. Power and talk. <laughs> that's that's, <laughs> that's the answer. The answer. <laughs> Why were they successful? Power, lots of power, power. Lots of torque. I mean, that's the answer to almost every. Is that the answer to every race question? I'm sure it is. Power <laughs> and torque. Yeah. Power and torque. Yes. So, unfortunately, as with many instances in racing, anytime one car or manufacturer seems to become so dominant, it seems like it's too good to last. I mean, SCCA finally got mad and they. They restricted our uh, fuel capacity. And once that happened, then we had to get out of the Canem, and actually that killed the Canem, and that was the end of the line. And it makes you kind of wonder, okay, so what would the next evolution would have been? So Porsche comes in, builds a four and a half liter flat 12. They turbocharge. Things got 1,500 horsepower. These guys are running around with probably, I don't know, what are they making? 800 horsepower out of a 8.3 liter with MFI and high compression and methanol or whatever they're running in these things who knows <laughs> and uh that's what they've got right so porsche comes along with this stuff what is the next step for mclaren right, because obviously they would have upped their game they as would have well upped their game all of a sudden the next season where they would have had blowers on those things <laughs> i can almost you laugh but i can almost guarantee that you're going to see turbocharged or blown 8.3 liter imagine it's blocks. basically like a top fuel dragster that they put it in a can-am car it's <laughs> just nutty and so can-am was this like you say this golden era of motorsport partly because it was just no holds barred in a can-am there were no rules the rule book was maybe 10 pages there no rule book if you had an idea if you wanted to put a, a, a 28-cylinder engine in the car we could do it you know what i mean but there was no nothing was there limited and i we haven't seen anything, and it was this era of Can-Am and Group B, right? They kind of existed, not at the same time, but of the same mentality of, um, it's this old adage of run what you brung. Right. Right, and I just love that about this period. And I feel like we um, we got so quagmired in the rules, right? Because they're trying to level the playing field. Level the, the, the BOP, right? The balance of power. Sure. And we actually talked about this with Alan quite a bit off, off the off topic kind of right. on, a, on a big tangent and that'll be in the patreon interview if you want to hear the rest of that but it was just it's really interesting to see now every race mounting now it's this the rule book is 500 pages long oh yeah and y- you can't do this and you can't so do much that. less interesting the, the dimensions of this the, all the in Canada, all the tracks were different i'm not talking about the the, the race tracks i'm talking the tracks of the car the sure. width of the car the length of the car oh the i see what you mean the track wheelbase uh, was they, everything was different yeah, every single car. Because at that point, they were just experimenting, yeah, right? Like, what can we do? What can we push? How can we push the envelope? And I wish even you know what would have been really cool about Formula E. What they would have done What's is that? if they would have said, "Hey, bring it." Yeah, just whatever it is, it Show has up. to use electric. Yeah, maybe that's put, how they should have done it. Maybe put a money cap on it, right? Because you have to have a money cap so different people can compete. Like, yeah, you've got this much money to spend. Innovate, do what you want. I mean, right. the, the restrictions weren't as bad with Formula E as some of the other things, but it's still it's like this box that you. And that's how in. you get innovation is by letting these teams do whatever they can and want to try to succeed. Right. 
And that is what Mesger did with the 917 as well, Chris. By the end of its reign, there were 11 different variants of the 917 that had been produced for different races. The 917 started, the PA. Then came the 917 normal. Then came the 917-10. And then came the 917-30. And the 30 was the ultimate race car. That may be, but Chris, my personal favorite 917 variant was by far the Pink Pig. (laughs) And here's why. Okay. In 1970, Porsche was playing with two versions of the 917 chassis. The 917K, as in Kronzheck, which is German for short tail, and the 917L, which is Longheck or long tail. Now, the K car had its rear end basically lopped off to generate more downforce. That's a totally different K car than anybody that... Yeah, it's not the Reliant (laughs) K car, is it? Yeah, it's not the Chrysler version. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, this K car had the end basically shortened, which created more downforce, but it also caused more drag. While this long tail was much more slippery aerodynamically, and it was designed specifically for the Le Mans and the six-mile-long Muslan Strait. Now, to everyone's surprise, though... In 1970, the K car still beat the L car, not to mention everything else on the track. So, in 1971, Porsche engineers attempted to combine the best attributes of the K and L car 917s. The results, however, were not pretty. So, this Frankenstein car was wider, with a snouty front end and a short tail section, Rumor has it that the Italian sponsors at Martini and Rossi were so unimpressed by the shape of the car that they pulled their sponsorship and didn't want their iconic blue and red livery on the car. And so Porsche had this predicament. They had a car so ugly that no sponsor wanted their name on it, and the chassis soon became known as the Pig because it's just so darn ugly looking. But in a brilliant piece of PR, Porsche designer Antolone Lapine doubled down on this ugly pig image and took pink spray paint and decals to create the now infamous pink pig livery. The car was decorated as a pig, of course, labeled with each of the body parts according to the butcher-style cuts, and the car caused a sensation at Le Mans that year. It was the fastest car during the pre-race qualifying, even though it was totally untested. I imagine the guys at uh, the, the Martini Rossi and like, oh, we should have done that. <laughs> well, unfortunately, during the main race, it was forced to drop out due to an accident near the end of the race, so it didn't succeed overall. However, speaking of testing, Chris Alwyn had an interesting story about how he would personally shake down these monsters after each engine rebuild. What I would do is I would overhaul the engine and in, uh, in our shop, put it in the car. Take the uh, the, the uh, car on the flatbed with the winch, bring it up, you know, just have a block behind the rear wheels that it couldn't run down. Drive to Willow Springs, unload it by myself, get in a car, drive around there for two hours, you know, nice and easy, nice and easy, breaking in the engine, dyno, dyno work at Willow Springs. And then when it was finished, I lifted up the rear decklet, took a look, no leaks, no leaks on the knees. And then on the straightaway, I hit it once in third gear. And I tell you, fast enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> so then I lo- uploaded the thing again and we went racing. So, yes, that was my time of driving a 917. It's, uh, it's hard to, to 
these cars are so untouchable now. Sen- right. Selling for $13 million yeah. at auction. And here's a guy that's got a flatbed truck with a block of wood behind him. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes it out there. I like how he breaks it in. He's like, we didn't have an engine dyno to break no, it we in. we just drove it just around. Just drove it around hours. Willow Springs for two hours. And then at the end, just to test it, let her loose in third gear. That's exactly. Just imagine just having to restrain this thing for two hours and then wham you just do one pull in third gear down the straight which is i mean third gear in that thing must be incredible yeah you have all the torque coming on but at the end of the rev range you're doing like probably i have no idea 100 so i asked him, 50. i asked him i said well what other cars what would you what else have you driven what was your favorite yeah, how did drive? that compare basically and he says this was the only one i ever drove yeah let's talk about going out on top <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because of course mr medsker's legacy and accomplishments didn't end with the 917 far from it he was also involved in the introduction of the porsche 911 turbo or 930 as we know it quote without the 917 there simply wouldn't have been a 911 turbo because that technology remember is what he basically introduced this turbocharging technology on the 917 and refined it enough where they could put it on a 911. From there, Mesker also went on to develop such legendary cars as the 935 and the 962. Then there's what we in the modern 911 world and we, we picked the 917. Okay? Like I know everybody's like, "Well, what about these Okay, okay. We wanted to focus we wanted on the to 917 try and bear down a little bit on what what I kind of thought was the you know, the, one of the crowning achievements of Porsche was finally coming into Le Mans and just stopping exactly. It was such a huge thing for Porsche to do. Obviously, these other things are great too. Yeah, we really want. We've to done kind of, stories on the 935. Yeah, and we could do a whole other story in the 962. And then, as I mentioned, there's the modern 911, what we call the Mesger engine. So this refers to the 996 and 997 turbo engines, as well as those fitted the GT2 and GT3. Now, the engine architecture was initially designed by Mesger for the twin-turbo 911 GT1 Le Mans car. I didn't realize that's what it was actually designed for. So, to reduce oil pressure drop during hard cornering, oil is harvested from the GT1-derived crankcase by two separate scavenge pumps, and then it's pumped through by two other pumps into the rest of the engine. Right into the IMS bearing. Nope, no IMS on this, Chris. And that's why these Mezger-type engines are renowned as being so amazing. Because, yep. again, They're it's a race engine, yeah. right? So the engine is well, very... Well, it isn't a GT3, I mean, which is... Well, no, but it's from a GT1, the Le Mans car. Right. Well, when everybody says Mezger engine, they think you're talking about a GT3. Yes. That's pretty but much But that's the, the same that's... engine as in the turbos as well. Right. It uses right. the Mezger block. Right. Or what's interesting, I didn't realize that's what it's called because everything in the 996 where this was used, it was called the M96 engine. This is actually still called an M96. It's an M9672. Ah, so it's got a variation. Huh? Yeah. And it has a single head per bank as opposed to the 962 prototype, which is very similar to where the power plant uses separate cylinder heads for each cylinder, like an old air-cooled. Right. This is basically like an air-cooled block, but it has massive cylinder heads that just bolt right on each side. And those heads were actually four valve heads designed by Mesger for the water-cooled 959, although extensive work was needed to mate it to the 911 GT3 cylinder size. So we have all these iconic cars and designs that have come together to make these engines. And... What's interesting, Chris, is we still haven't even gotten to what became Hans Mesker's favorite engine that he developed. 
Yeah, and this is an engine that not everybody knows about. Right. It is a it's a well-known car and it has a couple of well-known drivers, but the engine itself was is like, "Oh, that was that was Porsche? That was Hans Mesger? That was him?" And if you're a Formula 1 guy, you're going to be like, "Oh yeah, well obviously I knew about this engine." But this is a little under the radar for some. Right. So we're talking about the Tag turbo power plant for Formula 1. Now, in 1984, Porsche returned to Formula 1 as an engine supplier. So they didn't have Porsche cars running, but they were the ones that provided the engine. Now, FIA regulations... And that's very common in Formula 1. Yes, it is. You have Mercedes as an engine provider and... Infinity or Renault or whatever. Uh, So FIA regulations allowed turbocharged engines, but restricted the maximum fuel load for a race. So this isn't... We talked about regulations a little earlier. I like this. I know F1 is hugely regulated, but the idea of just, all right, here's your amount of fuel, do what you can with it. Right. So to take advantage of that, Mesger designed a teeny 1.6 liter engine, a V6, which was capable of roughly a thousand horsepower for qualifying (laughs) and which was powered in the McLaren of Nicky Lauda and Elaine Prost. The engine was a huge success. That is a team. That is an absolute team. The 917 and the 908 was the beginning, but that the Tech Formula One engine that actually was his main, I would say, main achievement because it achieved it. To look at it, it was a little uh, six cylinder, and it, it it just it just revolutionized Formula One at that time with um, uh, come on with Nicky Lauda and Alan Prost. I mean, they beat almost everybody. At the first race of the season, Prost and Lauda claimed a 1-2 victory with this engine. All the opponents were either lapped or simply didn't finish the race. That's amazing. McLaren and the Porsche engine won 12 out of 16 races at the time and propelled Lauda to become the world champion that year. Now, it just goes to show how revolutionary and amazing Mesger was as an engine builder and an engineer for the, Porsche. I would call it versatility. Yeah, you're right. There's because it's not just one here. type of engine. And he worked on complete chassis like the 917 and that first Formula One car, the 804. You know, Porsche themselves have stated that, quote, Hans Mesger is one of the most important engineers of our brand's history. Within four decades, Porsche race cars went on to win with engines designed by the man himself. Hans Mesker made the brand synonymous with winning sports cars around the world. Besides being an amazingly accomplished engineer whose legacy lives on in the Porsche brand, he was also a remarkably genuine, nice person. Alwyn Springer didn't know him well, but he did share his experience. In 1970, I uh, worked for four months in the in the factory, and uh, uh, at that time there was no Weiser. It was all in Zuffenhausen, and of course he was uh, he was already an, an icon there. But uh, I met him through somebody, and I have to say he was very friendly. And now during the next years, especially when Ember was founded, he always had time for any questions. And when I visited Weiser, he would find the opening in his busy schedule to sit in his office and have a nice talk. You have to remember, you know, like uh, uh, he was, you know, at that time, look, I was just starting when I worked with Pollock. Sure, I was crew chief and I was chief mechanic and what do I know? But, you know, like we were... We were a very, very small outfit, and, and, and Metzger at that time, he was already, you know, with the big boys. 
So uh, that's what I appreciated actually most on him, that he never forgot, you know, like, uh, um, I don't want to say his upbringing or what, but he, he, he was not a cocky guy, you know, like, and, and then he remembered me after the first time I met him in the development department in Hoffenhausen, and um, it, it, just, it just created a nice relationship. But basically, the racing report and everything else, I had nothing to do with that with uh, Metzger and that. That was all a deal between uh, Valentin Schäfer. He was the head uh, uh, engine guy, you know, in, in Weissach from the 917 specially and uh, and later on with uh, mostly with Valentin and uh, that's where I actually talked to. You know, like, so Metzger, I, you know, like I said, he was living on a different thing. But later on, later on, you know, we actually became very close. And we talked a lot about the good old times and the good things. But that was uh, later on in life, you know, let's say in the, in the 90s. But until, you know, like in, uh, in uh, when I took over Porsche Motorsport and I'll, then it, it just became more, you know, how are you doing? What are you up to? But at that time, he was already close of getting uh, into his retirement. So, um, you know, like on a, on a professional base, I did not spend a lot of time with him. Set together the last time in Monterey at the Porsche party, at the Porsche uh, reunion party on Saturday evening. And our conversation and time will stay forever in my memory because it was very nice. And I think that it's really going to stay in everybody's memory. Yeah. All Porsche fans should, you know, be sending out a big thank you to Hans Metzger for making, essentially being the core of making all of it possible. Right. And I just love that story from Alwyn, his take that he wasn't directly involved in, but the first time he met him, he remembered him since then. And just kind of the humility of the man and the way he talked about his engines and how he engineered. Well, we had all the parts. We just didn't know how to use them yet. It's like, he's just, such a humble person and such an accomplished person that I think it's really cool to look back at the legacy that he leaves. Indeed. We'll see you guys on Monday. Take care.